Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in Acts chapter 18 this morning, Acts chapter 18. As we get started, let us remind ourselves what the purpose of this study, what this book is. Uh, The purpose of Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church despite internal obstacles and external opposition. As we go through this series, you'll notice that every single message, everything, everything we study is directly related to one part of this uh, purpose of the book of Acts. And today we're kind of centering in on these last two phrases, internal obstacles and external opposition. Internal op- uh, obstacles and external oppositions. And so today we want to talk about two gentle reminders during obedience. Um, I was talking to a friend this last week, and uh, he's an entrepreneur of sorts, and he was working on getting a billboard in town, and he was showing me what the billboard was going to look like and how it was going to be designed, and he shared with me where exactly it's going to go in town, and uh, this morning as I was reviewing Acts 18, I began thinking about, wouldn't it be nice if God just gave us billboards from time to time, right? Don't make this decision. Uh, Make this decision. Uh, avoid the freeway today, um, right? You should break up with so-and-so. You should marry so-and-so. You should buy this house. You should refinance. You should make this big. Like it would be great if God just gave us really big billboards from time to time. And somehow, it may not be through a billboard, sometimes God does speak really loudly in our lives. There are definitely opportunities where God speaks louder than others, and he might do so through a message like this, and there's a piece of scripture, and it just hits you in the face, and you might not remember anything I said, but the scripture hits you in the face, and you realize you need to move based on that impulse. There's opportunities where you'll have a conversation with someone who you trust and you love, and someone else, someone who's also a follower of Jesus Christ, and they might give you some wisdom, they might give you some counsel, and it just smacks you right across the face, and you recognize recognize in this moment, oh, this is God speaking to me through this person. But there's often a lot of times in life where we simply get gentle reminders. They don't hit you in the face necessarily, but the reminders are there. Um, In 1 Kings chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but um, 1 Kings chapter 19, I should say, there's a story of Elijah and Elijah is speak. our Lord is speaking to Elijah. And I saw these verses uh, this morning, and it said this, uh, the Lord, as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And that's where God's voice was, in the gentle whisper. And so today, we're going to look at this passage where there's really two gentle reminders 
for Paul. They're reminders that are important, that are crucial, that I think we need today, but you must silence the voices around you. You have to silence the past that is shouting at you, maybe the guilt and the shame in your life. You have to silence the noise around you, maybe the, uh, the, the voices or, or, or the negative influences you have in your life today in order just to listen and embrace these gentle reminders. For review's sake, we just finished Acts chapter 17, and we're in the middle, or we're at the end of the second missionary journey from Paul. In Acts 17, we saw a couple of differences uh, from the norm. Paul was alone ministering. We've noticed that Paul normally has uh, moved with a group of people that have helped him with his ministry. Who are some of the people that has helped Paul with his ministry so far? Anybody remember any names? You didn't know there would be a quiz today. There was Silas. Silas has helped him. Who else has helped him? Barnabas has helped him. Who else? Timothy. I'm not going to ask for another one because I don't remember a fourth. Um, there's at least three. Mark was with him for a bit. There's, there's, there's these individuals that Paul is going to towns with. At the end of chapter 17, he gets kicked out of the town he's in. He makes his way to Athens. And in Athens, we saw last week, he is talking to... The thinkers of the day, philosophers, poets, academics. And so the first difference in Acts 17 in his ministry is he's ministering alone. The second thing is he didn't go formally into a synagogue to begin teaching. He actually went to where the academics were. He went to Mars Hill to go and to debate them. We pick it up in, first, uh, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. This is what happens immediately afterwards. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so let me give you a little background about Corinth. Corinth is a major city of the Roman Empire. It's an important crossroads of both trade and travel. It, has a commercial, it is a commercial center with two harbors. It's very strategically located. Culturally, it was notorious for its hedonism and immorality. Corinth was a city with a remarkable reputation for loose living, especially sexual immorality. And so even if you look at the books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you'll see that much of Paul's discussion with them is on the topic of sexual ethics because they were just engrossed in hedonism and immorality to the point where in classical Greek literature, literature to act like a Corinthian literally meant to practice fornication. A Corinthian companion was code for prostitute. This sexual immorality was permitted under the widely popular worship of Aphrodite, also known as Venus, the god of both fertility and sexuality. This is one of the reasons you don't see a lot of 1 Corinthian churches. This is not a church you name your church after. We talked about the Berean cities before, and we talked about Berean church, and that would be appropriate because Bereans were known for searching the scriptures diligently to making sure that what was spoken and taught was actually in the scriptures. You would want to name your church Berean church. You wouldn't want to name your church after Corinth. Corinth was, was, was Las Vegas culture, Amsterdam culture on steroids. It was just... It was the height of sexual immorality. In 146 BC, historically, Corinth rebelled against Rome and was brutally destroyed by Roman armies. 
It laid in ruins for century, a century until Julius Caesar rebuilt the city, and he reestablished former position as a center for both trade and immorality. And by heightening these two areas of emphasis, Corinth was once again on the map. So he left Athens, which featured the culture of the Epicureans and the Stoics. The, the Epicureans were, uh, and the Stoics were, uh, they were seeking pleasure with everything they did in life, or they believed there was nothing as, there was no such thing as good and evil. So you can see how that culture would be debased. Now he goes into Corinth where there's no, there's no understanding necessarily of good and evil. They have just gone all in on absolute evil. Verse We see next the strategy for ministry in Corinth, Um, his strategy. Verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. The strategy for ministry in Corinth is interesting. It was difficult work in Corinth, just based on what we've talked about in culture, yet that didn't dissuade Paul. His strategy was simply this. He went where God led him, even though the work was not easy. Paul knew that because people from all over the empire would pass through Corinth, that a strong, influential church in Corinth could set the tone in that area. But he wasn't only interested in planning churches where he thought it was easy, where he thought it would be easy to establish a church. He went where God led him. And he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Paul called them his fellow workers. um, And uh, we don't get a lot of information on marriages in the New Testament with actual people. Um, As I was thinking and as I was reading, I could only think of a few. One is Peter and his wife. And the only reason we know he had a wife is because at some point in the Gospels, it shares that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So we know that he was married. But again, no details. Peter doesn't really talk about it much in his two epistles, nor in Mark's account through Peter's lens. Uh, The other example of a marriage that we have seen in the book of Acts is Ananias and Sapphira. Not exactly the template we want to use for marriages in the New Testament. They lied together. They conspired together. They lied against the Holy Spirit. They were judged immediately for it. We're going to talk about Priscilla and Aquila in upcoming messages, but it does, it's an interesting thing that uh, we get a, a view into uh, their marriage in upcoming uh, chapters. Paul was a tent maker. We get that little bit of input as well. That means he supported himself as he did his missionary and preaching work. Let's read on verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul was effective as he reasoned with Jews and Greeks. The Greeks present in the synagogue were Gentiles, interested in or sympathetic with Judaism. And Timothy comes back. He brings news about how the Christians in Thessalonica were remaining steadfast in the faith. And this brought Paul great joy, spurring him on in the ministry. And according to 2 Corinthians, while Paul was in Corinth, he received support from the Christians in Philippi. And he was able to put aside tent making for a while and concentrate more fully on the church in Corinth. But just the fact that now uh, Timothy has come back, some of the others have come back, the band is back together now. 
Um, Paul has been working on his own now in Corinth in the middle of this uh, this, this society that is completely degraded in terms of its, its ethics and morals. Now the band is coming back together. Things are going great. Things are happening. Everyone's happy, right? We look at next the opposition to Paul's message. Look at verse 6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What's happening here? The Jewish people have rejected his message. This is not normal. This has been the case in every city Paul has gone. He's going, he's preaching that the Christ is, in fact, Jesus. That Jesus is the Christ. He's not just a great teacher. He's not a madman. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one that will take away our sins. He is the promised person. And now the Jewish people, when this happens, they view it as a form of blasphemy, and they opposed him and reviled him. His response is to shake out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your hands. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is the classic thing where like the Jews said, you're fired. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. I quit. (laughs) Right? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. His message was rejected, and he makes no, he wastes no time in going to the Gentiles. Scripture says he shook his garments, and they did that as a way to, uh, to, to express their, uh, in a dramatic way that not a speck of dust from the synagogue would remain on his clothes, much less his sandals. He goes in verse 7, look at Paul's response. He left there... And went to a house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Oh, yeah, his house was next door to the synagogue. Is this passive aggressive of Paul? I don't know. I kind of feel like it might be. Um, He goes right next door to the synagogue, he meets Justice. Look at verse A. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So the ruler of the synagogue now has believed. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. This shows that Paul treated the Jews of Corinth with love and with grace, even after they rejected him. And people that would still believe in him, he was more more than happy to continue ministering to them. We notice next God's triumph over this opposition. Don't get too excited. The first four points are really quick. Uh, we see the condition of Corinth. This is a, this is a highly immoral, uh, anything goes in terms of their culture. Paul's strategy for ministry was not to avoid the difficult places. In fact, this is part of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8 when he says, you'll receive power, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you, you're going to go to Jerusalem, the place where you live, you're going to go to to Judea, the people that you're around, you're also going to go to Samaria, the places you have no intention of ever visiting. And so Paul's strategy was simply to listen as God led him. We see the opposition to Paul's message, and the Jews were not happy. And yet we see God triumph over this opposition. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. In fact, let's read this whole verse together. Ready, begin. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. This is easy to read. 
But I want you to think about where Paul is emotionally. There was this culture shock in Athens, the city he was just in. They, they pursued every pleasure in life, food, drink, sexual immorality, anything goes. Uh, there was the, that was the Epicureans. The Stoics just simply believed that there is no good or evil and there's uh, every one of us is God. That means no one is God if everyone is God. And so whatever you do goes. He now goes to Corinth and now there's this other culture shock where this, where this very important city in antiquity is now the, cult, the cultural center for this immorality that's, that's all hidden under the guise of worship to Aphrodite or the God of Venus, the Venus God. And now he's here in Corinth and his brothers had rejected him. And perhaps there was fear here that in Corinth, if his work would be cut short by opposing Jews and he saw the breadth of ministry that was in front of him, he thought, I hope I don't get run out of this town quickly. I hope I get to stay here. Who knows what he was thinking? But the Lord knew and gave him this bit of encouragement. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Verse 10. Let's read these uh, verse 10 together. Ready? Begin. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You ever feel like you're alone? You ever feel like you're the only one trying to obey God in your life? You're the only person in your family. You're the only person at work. You're the only person in your circle of friends. You're the only person in a relationship. And you feel like you're the only one trying to pursue God. You're the only one. I believe these verses are very encouraging for us. He says here, um, I have many in the city who are my people. The solution to Paul's fear was for him to obey God's command to not be afraid Yet Jesus didn't tell Paul that his opponents wouldn't try to stop him, only that they would not be successful. The promise was the basis for God's command to not be afraid and to keep teaching. What we understand, when we understand what this means and who it says, this becomes enough in our life. This promise was a constant assurance to Paul, who must have had his own doubts about the survival and health of a Corinthian church. Turns out Paul was in Corinth for about a year and a half, which... I think is the longest he spends in any church, any city. And the duration of Paul's stay in Corinth shows where his heart was in ministry. He was not just someone who went in and out starting churches and then leaving them, starting and leaving them. That happened on occasion, but he was committed to making disciples. So now as far as the Jews and their response to Paul, here we go again. Verse 12. But when Galileo was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So in approaching Galileo, the Jews of Corinth tried to stop Paul's preaching in the entire area. And if Galileo had accepted the Jews' charge and found Paul guilty, the governors would have had a precedent and Paul's ministry would have been severely restricted. But look at the wording in verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. In other words, if there's anything you said that could be substantiated, if there's any wrongdoing, if there's a criminal enterprise at work, I'd be happy to step in, but that's not the case. Verse 15, but since it is a matter of questions about the words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the 
tribunal. Verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of uh, the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. What has happened? Where apparently, remember Crispus? Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. He comes to Jesus. Um, he's baptized him and his family. Sosthenes is the guy who replaces Crispus. Galileo holds this tribunal, hears the charges, and says, this seems like something you should be dealing with your own, uh, with your own uh, people. I don't want to get involved in this. There's, nothing, there's no clear-cut uh, way for me to get involved. The tribunal hears Galileo and then responds by taking Sosthenes, the new ruler. How's his first day on the job looking? He's literally just put in place of, of leadership and the ruler of the synagogue. And verse 17 says they seized him and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. He looked the other way when angry Gentiles beat him. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea, he had, his, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. We'll get to that in a minute. It was definitely Galileo's duty for them to leave, the good, uh, to leave a good man alone, to leave Paul alone. But I don't think it was his duty to allow the Gentiles to be in beating another Jew out of retribution. It's a very interesting historical account of what's happening here. Galileo seems to have acted as an instrument of God to, uh, to protect Paul in this moment and really protect the ministry. But on the other hand, he also lets Sosthenes get beaten um, just at the hands of this riotous mob. It's very interesting. Paul stays there for a few days longer and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. His whole length of time, by the way, has been about a year and a half there. So it's interesting when you read scriptures, we've read 18 verses this morning. It can feel like the sequence of events goes very quickly, right? On day one, this happens. And day two, this happens. And day three, when really these 18 verses span about a year and a half of Paul's ministry there. One of the longest stretches he spends anywhere. Um, the end of verse uh, 18 says that Centrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. What can I say? God gives a few of us perfect heads, and the rest of us have hair. The rest of you have hair. Um, he was under a vow, it says here. This is interesting to note because uh, the vow was most certainly a Nazarite vow. Those of you who would like to do some additional study on this, go to Numbers chapter 6 and just kind of read through what it meant to have a vow as a Nazarite. Usually this vow was taken for a certain period of time, and when completed, the hair, which was allowed to grow freely, freely was cut off. It was offered to the Lord at a special ceremony at the temple. During this time of the vow, you wouldn't have any product from the grapevine, which is just interesting to note. So no grapes, no wine, no raisins, no chocolate-covered raisins, no... Um, anything that came from the vine was prohibited while you took this vow, and then you were also never to come near a dead body. Um, you see this story of the vow kind of played out in the life of whom in the Old Testament? This is Samson, the life of Samson. You could read about that as well. So Paul's performance of this vow is, is a cultural nuance that is very important to us today for this reason. It shows that the Jewish opposition 
to his preaching did not make him anti-Jewish. So he had, uh, we've, we've chronicled it, I want to say five times before in the book of Acts, he goes to a city, goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel. In the synagogue, the Jewish people are the ones that run him out of town. Five times. Almost happens here, but Galileo steps in. So all of this anti-Paul uh, rhetoric from the Jewish people did not cause Paul to be anti-Jewish. Do you see what happened there? It's very interesting. He still uh, chooses to, uh, to voluntarily put himself under a Jewish vow, and he was adamant that Jewish ceremonies and rituals aren't required but he saw nothing wrong with Jewish believers who wish to observe these circumstances, especially if their fulfillment in Jesus was also recognized. You say, why is that important? Because our enemy is not people, folks. And we might go through life and have, uh, have people or presume people to be anti the church or against us or against God, but it should not ever lead us to have an anti-people outlook. The Bible says in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, people are never the enemy. The enemy is always something uh, is against uh, uh, spiritual wickedness, spiritual powers in high places. And so I don't want us to ever get to a point where we point at people and say, these people are the enemy. They might be instruments. They might be uh, holding on to something that we don't claim is true. But Paul, in his recognition that these people were, uh, were, were, uh, were persecuting him, they were harassing him, they were driving him out, didn't cause him to be anti-Jewish. Rather, instead, he, he recognized it for what it was. He gave the gospel to people who would receive it, that were open to it, and that included Jews and Gentiles. And when appropriate, he engaged in the culture that allowed him to preserve some, preserve some of his Jewish heritage. We come to verse 19. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with them. The, he left them there. That's Priscilla and Aquila and the others that were traveling them. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. He wanted to preach in Ephesus, remember, earlier. It was one of the first places he wanted to go, remember? And what did the Holy Spirit say? Uh-uh. He said no. He wanted to go again. He forbade him. But now the Holy Spirit is giving him liberty to preach in this important city. Great results were seen. In hindsight, no really meant wait. I think that really stinks. I think it's really, really hard for us to hear no from God because most of the time, no simply means you're not ready, the situation's not ready, or it's not my timing, and so it's no. It's an important thing in our life to really begin to trust who God is more than what he does. And when we trust God for who he is, the creator of the world, the one who orders our days and lives and events, the one who is um, the, the beginning and the end, and when we trust God for who he is, 
it begins to lessen the blow of when we hear no from God. Mind you, I'm never happy when I hear no. It's very difficult to hear no. It's very difficult to wait. But I think the most often uh, duplicated discipline in our Christian life is to simply wait. How many of you understand most of life is waiting in between seasons? Most of life is waiting in between seasons. Most of life is looking forward to the next thing, waiting till you get there. And how many of you know as soon as that moment comes, there's another thing we're waiting for? You know, every time God answers a prayer, it just leads you to more prayer requests. Every single time. So you think about any kind of prayer request you have in your life. Lord, I hope we buy a house. Great. Uh, so, so you wait for that, and most of your life is the in-between of waiting till you buy this house, and you have to get a loan. I was talking to someone right before church that there's like all these steps, and you have to get approved, and then someone has to inspect it, and then someone has to insure it, and all of these things. And then you sign, you know, you sign like four inches worth of paperwork, and then and you don't understand what you're signing, and then you get your keys, and you know what the first thing you do when you walk into your house you walk back out and you go to Lowe's because you got to do all this stuff to buy. You got to buy all this stuff to work on your house. And the next thing becomes, well, I, I hope we can get our house to where we want it. And most of your life is the in-between and you start praying for the next job so you can do more things to your house. Like, like most of life is this in-between and it gets really, really important for us to understand when God says no, there are things that he's considering that we don't have access to. So here's... If you look at, I want to say it's way back in Acts 12 or 13 that Paul gets the initial no from God. And he gets to go to all these other cities. He plants all these churches. He gets exposed to all of this different culture. And wait till he gets to Ephesus. Ephesus, the center of Ephesus culture was the worship of Diana. And if you do any research on Diana, Athens culture and now Corinthian culture was just setting him up to be able to minister in Ephesus. And I would say in hindsight, if he went to Ephesus first, he may not have learned enough of how to deal with that culture in order for him to get there. It's amazing how God works through the nose. Now here's the thing. There's a place in your life where God has said no recently. I know this because we're human so when you think about the place where God has said no, it's really hard. And as your pastor, I can tell you, I don't do this voluntarily, but I try really hard to say, Lord, I'm going to trust who you are. Because I don't understand why this prayer won't get answered. I don't understand why I can't have this prayer. This prayer isn't selfish. This prayer would help people. This prayer would glorify you. And for some reason, in your infinite wisdom and your mercy, you've chosen to say no. And I don't like it. So in this moment, I'm going to trust who you are. And I am no spiritual superhero because I struggle saying that prayer even in this moment. But this is where Paul has learned. He has, he has been with Jesus on this road, and he's, he's obeyed God. Uh, the title of today's message is Two Gentle Reminders During Obedience. Like the obedience part isn't easy, and you might, you might look at someone on the outward, and their life is put together. They're, they're here in church. They are, 
They have a Bible, and it's a big Bible. Like, they're really spiritual. The size of the... It's a big Bible. They're really spiritual. They have jobs. They're happy. Their Instagram is spotless. And if, if, you, if you go right behind the curtain, you realize it's a daily grind of obedience. It's difficult decision after difficult moment after difficult relationship. And most of us are doing the very best we can with just obeying God. And here's Paul. And, and we, might, we might read through Paul's story and think, oh, here's all of these spiritual highlights. And yet I guarantee you Paul is thinking, I've been kicked out of five cities. Everywhere I go, no one wants to hear the gospel. Everywhere I go, I keep getting kicked out of people who have been waiting for the Savior. It's a daily, daily grind of obedience. We come to verse 22 as we wrap up today's portion. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. How many of you know he didn't go up to a building and give it a kiss? Right? He greeted the church, the people. And then he went down to Antioch. So he leaves Jerusalem. Paul now, Paul now returns to his home in Antioch. And it's been about three years since he's been there. And you think about the stories he has to tell in those three years. Okay, here we go. Two gentle reminders during obedience. Number one, God will bring you special people at pivotal times in your life. Number two, God will bring you special encouragement at pivotal times in your life. These are gentle reminders. There's no billboard. There's no earthquake. There's no firestorm. There's no lightning. Gentle reminders. God will bring you special people at pivotal times in your life. And God will bring you special encouragement at pivotal times in your life. There will be times when things are going okay by the outward measures, but it's a grind on the inside. And when Paul, God spoke to Paul, it was in the middle of this grind, and he simply said, don't be afraid. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep obeying me. I am with you. Keep on keeping on. We chronicle the people in Paul's life. Paul is blinded on the road to Damascus, right? And Paul up to this point has a, let's just say his LinkedIn is not stellar at this point. Not a great reputation. He's known for harassing Christians, for killing them for persecuting them. There's one phrase where it says he went door to door breathing threatenings to God's people. And no doubt the whole church, the new church are like, Lord, if you would only eliminate Paul, your word would spread. <laughs> By the way, I would pray that too. If there was a guy who was persecuting people in Douglas County, I'm not sure I would pray for their salvation. I'd pray for their fill in the blank. I would, I would pray that they would be eliminated. And this is what they did. They, they, they probably prayed that, and yet God answers that prayer by saying, let me show you something. 
He blinds Paul, Saul at the time. Name gets changed to Paul. Blinds him. And you know who the first person God introduces Paul to? He says, there's a guy named Ananias. I need you to go see him. And then God has a conversation with Ananias saying, by the way, you need to find this guy. Stay with me. His name's Saul. And Ananias, I love that Luke captures this conversation between Ananias and God. Ananias says, are you sure? Is there another Ananias that you're, or is there another Saul that you're thinking of? Because I know this Saul, and I don't think it would be right for me to go hang out with him for any length of time. Spend some time with Ananias. Paul wants to go preach, and, and, and no one takes him in. This is at least 18 months later, after his conversion. And Barnabas says, I'll go with Paul. Paul and I will be teammates. And, Paul, and Barnabas becomes, this is his, 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 uh, his nickname is the son of encouragement. In other words, he just encourages people. And so he spends time with Paul, legitimizes Paul and his ministry. John Mark joins them. Timothy joins them. Silas joins Paul. And now we're introduced to this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who joined Paul. God will bring you special people at really pivotal times in your life. Now, here's the thing. You have to let them in. If you have built up a way of living that constantly cuts people out and removes people from your circle, you are, you are, you are refusing the very gifts God has given us and at the same time removing an opportunity for them to minister to you. This is why the local church is so important. This is why having friends and uh, friends in your circle that are, are Jesus followers. This is why uh, it's important to, to walk together in your faith is because we cannot do this alone. We can't. God will bring you special people at very pivotal times in your life. So my encouragement to you is just, um, and maybe you have built up like, like 12 foot walls around your life, Right? And I'm not saying you should destroy the wall overnight because you have lived life in such a way that the self-defense mechanism you have built up is to protect yourself. So as your pastor, I would understand and respect that. But I would say this, let's make those walls about four and a half feet high. Why don't you get to the place where you can actually see that there are other people doing life that want to encourage, that want to love you? What does it look like for you to welcome those opportunities? And I would say this, most of you are in the position where you get to be that person to someone else. So who's the person that you could be? Barnabas, Timothy, Paul, all of these different people played special, special, uh, had special, special relationships with Paul that allowed Paul to thrive. Paul must have gone through incredibly uh, massive amounts of depression, massive amounts of post-traumatic stress, if you want to call that massive amounts of guilt and shame from his old life, massive amounts of feeling rejected when his own brothers won't take him into the ministry, massive amounts of failure when he's getting kicked out out of every town he ever visits. 
And Paul needed these people to encourage him along the way. He will bring you special people at special times in your life, pivotal times, but you have to be able to receive them. And then secondly, God will bring you special encouragement at pivotal times in your life. It's very interesting. As we read through Paul's um, stories, this is one of the only times that we actually see God, um, God come alongside of Paul in the middle of a missionary journey. I'm sure it's happened before, but Luke felt it very important for us to uh, see this moment, that in the middle of this year and a half in Corinth, that there was a moment where God came to him and said, hey, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. You keep preaching the gospel. It feels like you're alone. And by the way, you will get attacked, but they will not be successful. And by the way, Paul, there are many people in this city who name my name. Here's the thing about receiving special encouragement from God at special pivotal times. You have to be listening. Right? You have to be listening. How does God give you special encouragement? Well, uh, uh, there's moments of prayer, right? There's moments of reading scripture. Uh, there's moments sitting in a, me- a sermon like this in worship. Um, God, God will give you the special encouragement. Um, if, if, if one of your friends who's a follower of Jesus texts you to ask how you're doing, yeah, they're checking in on you as a voice from the Holy Spirit. They're being instruments of God's, of God's uh, moving in your life. But you have to be in a position where you're listening. If you get a phone call from someone, if someone affirms you, if, if, a, if a scripture means something to you, all of those things, you have to be in a posture that says, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read uh, for a few reasons. One, because I know I should, and I know I'll feel better afterwards, but in this moment, I don't really feel like it. I mean, you already, if you're already thinking that, you might as well vocalize it before you read. God knows anyway. <laughs> and maybe that'll just remove the block, the, the hindrance. And so then you read scripture and you think, yep, that didn't do it. So then you pray. Say, Lord, I just read this and I, I don't know, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I trust who you are. And so I'm going to pray. And you go through your day, and I guarantee you, if your heart is open, there will be a time where that scripture comes back, where that prayer comes back, and you will get the affirmation in your life. But most of life is not on spiritual plateaus. Most of our life is not on mountaintop experiences. You know the mountaintop represents a very small amount of the actual mountain? And most of life is climbing the mountain and then coming off of the mountain. Both of those experiences are grueling. Both of those experiences require a lot of emotional capacity, a lot of spiritual capacity. And we talked about it before that most of life is waiting in between these mountaintop experiences, and it's the truth. And so if you go through life just waiting to experience a mountaintop experience every single day of your life, you will set yourself up for disappointment. But if you treat your daily life as just walk that says, I'm going to walk with you today, Lord, I'm going to... I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to do my very best. I know there's people around me, and so, Lord, when they reach out to me, help me to embrace them. 
I know you have encouragement for me, so as I go through this life, Lord, would you please encourage me? Those are the moments that allow the Holy Spirit to listen to us. I can't stress this enough. These are gentle reminders. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.